0: Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3. In fact, I told somebody in the back, I'm so prepared that you need to pray for me because I have far too much to say in one setting, which as you know, probably will mean uh, that we'll go over and it will probably mean that I'll use the same set of notes for, you know, three or four times uh, in the future, but that'll be all right because I think that the Lord has so many, many things to say to us through this series that we have been teaching through. The title of our series is The New Man in Christ. The New Man in Christ. And we're talking through our series on what it means to be a Christian. If you could boil it all down, we're talking about what it means to manifest Christianity in your life, and we've been doing so from the book of Colossians chapter 3. I think this might be the seventh or eighth message that we've done in this series, and we are through verse 7 that we covered week before last, and we're going to be dealing predominantly with verses 8 to 11 this morning. We'll see how far we get, but we are talking about the characteristics of the new man. What does the new man look like? How should a new Christian act? What should he or she be characterized by? What differences? What changes in a person's life who becomes a Christian? What does a new man in Christ look like? And as we have been endeavoring to say throughout this series, the Apostle Paul skillfully answers every one of those questions in Colossians 3. And we would do well to read that section of Scripture in our hearing today. And so let's read together Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now... You also put them all aside or put them off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Now, I posed a few questions a moment ago. Those questions, what are the characteristics of the new man in Christ? What does it mean to be new in Christ? How does that newness in your Christianity manifest itself? Well, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that Christians are indeed characterized by a new life new desires, new habits. We could call it a new sphere of existence, a new realm of living. And he also says that as opposed to that, unregenerate people, non-Christians, unsaved folks are also characterized by old habits, wicked thinking, and an old realm or sphere of existence. And Paul goes on to say in this section of Scripture that those who have indeed been transferred out of the realm of the old life and into the realm of the new life, the realm of the Spirit of God, the realm of salvation by Jesus Christ, are actually those who are changing in their thinking and changing in their conduct as well. One of the great Bible teachers of yesteryear actually died in 1990 and had a very, very fruitful ministry in writing commentaries on the New Testament was a man by the name of F.F. F. Bruce. And he writes about what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3, and he has very, very wise words for us. This is what he says. He says, Pagans, though these people had once been, they had now received a new nature. They were in Christ, and Christ lived in them. If they accepted the logic of this new situation if they looked on themselves as dead to their former desires and alive to God in Christ, then the Christ life now coming to maturity within them would manifest itself in a new pattern of behavior. In another place, he stated it this way, commenting on the first couple of verses of Colossians 3. He says, don't let your ambitions be earthbound, set on transitory and inferior objects. Don't look at life and the universe from the standpoint of these lower planes. Look at them from Christ's exalted standpoint. Judge everything by the standards of that new creation to which you now belong, not by those of the old order to which you have said a final farewell." Very good words. What he's saying is this, if you have indeed been transferred out of the realm of the old life, out of the realm of the old you that you used to be, all of us, into the realm of the new, and if we have indeed been transferred, then the old life must be put away completely and totally so that we might live unhindered in the new world, the new life, the Christ life, he says. Christ is living in us, And so, therefore, we should by that be different. What should characterize those who are the new man in Christ? In short, it is those who are becoming what they already are. If you are indeed a new creation in Christ, you ought to start living that way. You ought to continually become what you are. That's his point. The Christ life, the new man in Christ is made up of those who are experiencing a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteousness. That's the new life. That's the new man. And you already know that there are other things that we've discussed in this series that we have said is characteristic of the new man in Christ. And just by way of review, especially for those of you who are not regularly with us, We said in Colossians chapter 3 from verse 1 that the very first thing that characterizes the new man in Christ is that he pursues heavenly things. You see it there in verse 1? If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is saying there that if you are truly regenerate, if you truly know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the very first thing that will characterize your new life in Christ is that as a habit of your life, as a characteristic nature of your new existence, you will indeed pursue heavenly things. And you'll pursue it as the habit of your life. You will be heaven-bound. You will be thinking of heavenly things, not being earth-bound, not being tied to the elements of this world. The second thing he said that characterizes the new man in Christ is that he will be also preoccupied with heavenly things. He will continually set his mind on those things that are spiritual, not those things that are earthly. He talks about that in verses two to four. Thirdly, the third thing that characterizes the new man in Christ, Paul says, is the putting to death, the killing, The mortifying of earthly things. And he enumerates what those are in verses 5 to 8. He says, therefore, kill, mortify, put to death. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to what? To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He says in verse 5 that because you have indeed become a part of the new man in Christ, then the things that are listed there in verse 5 should not be a part of the habitual nature of that new life. He says you should be dead to those things. And whenever they rear their ugly head because they were a part of your old life, whenever they come up, kill them, put them to death. Don't allow them to be characteristic of your new life. He says, indeed, they can't be. Why? Verse 6, because the wrath of God will come upon those things. In other words, God will punish everyone who lives like that. And if you're a Christian, if you've truly been transferred into the new realm of life, you can't live that way because the wrath of God does not come on believers, only unbelievers. And so, therefore, if the wrath of God is to come, you can't even be characterized that way because you cannot be condemned along with the world. Remember we said that those who are in Christ cannot now be condemned, according to Paul in Romans 8.1. You can't be condemned, which means you can't be living in these things because you have a new life. And then he says in verse 7, And in them, in these sins, in these vices, you also once walked when you were living in them, implying, of course, that you don't live in them anymore. They're not a part of who you are. Therefore, whenever you are tempted by them, resist it. Resist it. Put to death those things that are of the earth. They aren't part of heaven. They won't be a part of what we're going to be doing in heaven. In heaven, we're going to be worshiping God, praising God, loving God, serving God. There won't be any immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed in heaven. Therefore, since it's not going to be true of your citizenship in heaven when you get there, don't allow it to be a part of you in your citizenship now because you are a citizen of heaven even now. It's a down payment and it will come to pass. And because that is a reality, you cannot do these things. That's his point. So... If I'm a new man in Christ, I'm going to pursue heavenly things. I'm going to be preoccupied with those spiritual realities. And whenever those sins come in my life, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to mortify them. I'm going to put them to death. And did you know that Paul doesn't stop there? He says there's a fourth thing that characterizes the new man in Christ, and that's where we are this morning. Number four in our little list, those things that characterize the new man in Christ, Paul says it like this. The putting off of dirty clothes, the putting off of dirty clothes, pursuing heavenly things, being preoccupied with spiritual realities, putting to death all of the earthly things that used to characterize you, and fourthly, the putting off of dirty clothes. That's Paul's way of using an analogy of evil habits, the putting off of evil evil habits. And he begins to tell us that in verse 8. Let's read it together. But now you also put them all aside or put off, put off what? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do you know what characterizes the new man in Christ according to Paul? Not just the individual Christian, but corporately the body of Christ. They must be, they will be, they shall be characterized by the putting off of sins that are enumerated there, like the putting off of dirty clothes. And Paul uses an analogy that we would understand very, very well. You would not continually, as a part of your life, wear dirty old clothes. You would change them. You would put them off. You would take them off. And that's his point if you have truly been transferred into a new realm if in the consistency of his analogy if you have been given new clothes then you should wear them and you should put off the old dirty clothes that used to characterize you he says you should be characterized by the putting away or the putting aside or to fit with his analogy, the putting off from yourselves any article of clothing that doesn't speak of your Christianity, that isn't consistent with who you are. And he uses a very, very interesting word, this word put off or putting off, apotithyme, it's used in a literal sense very, very interestingly of the Apostle Paul himself. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. You remember Paul before he was a regenerate man. And you remember his name, don't you? What was his name? Saul. Saul. The Bible often, when someone becomes regenerate, is said to be given a new name, right? Now, that doesn't necessarily jive with our our culture. We go by the same name, that name that's on our birth certificate. But in that culture... If someone was granted a regenerate nature by God, God Himself often gave that person a new name. Well, I wish we might uh, consider that in our own culture. Because it would show us the idea that we are a new person. We have a new life. We should be characterized by new thinking and new behavior. And that was true of Paul, who was once Saul. And in Acts chapter 7, you know that that chapter is almost exclusively tied in with the death of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And he was martyred because he was preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders of the time didn't like it because he was indicting them and saying that they were not truly following God. And of course, that would have been incredibly difficult for them to hear because they assumed that they were the followers of God they assumed that since they were the descendants of Abraham they were of the in crowd Stephen comes along and says not only are you not followers of God but you put to death the Son of God the person you say is the Messiah that you're looking for and out of that number there was a man and that man's name was Saul and he was a wicked man oh He might have had a righteousness externally. He says that about himself in Philippians 3. He says, as to the law, found blameless. In other words, if anybody had identified him and said, well, what about that fellow named Saul? Does he follow the law? No one at that time would have been able to find anything in his life that wouldn't have looked at least externally like he was absolutely following the law of God to the letter, And that was his own personal testimony. As to the law, I was blameless. I was doing everything I could to follow Yahweh. And it even came to the point where when Stephen himself, here in Acts 7, after his gospel sermon, he was being stoned to death. And guess how the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at that time, was involved. Verse 58 of Acts chapter 7. And when they had driven him, that's Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside, that's our word, that's our word, put off. And the witnesses put off their robes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Do you think that word has significance for Paul's life? Do you think he understood the reality of what it meant to put off? And what he does is he borrows the literal rendering of that word here in Acts 7 and says, Now, as a spiritual reality, I am telling you, Colossians, what I should have learned back in Acts 7, and that was this, that you must put off like a garment the deeds of unrighteousness. And I'm sure, beloved, that many, many times the Apostle Paul said to himself, why didn't I have that in my mind? Why didn't I have that in my life there in Acts 7? I killed my brother Stephen. And of course, Paul would have immediately said in response to that himself, but God is sovereign. God allowed me to experience this, no doubt, so that I could give him greater glory later on. And Paul would have understood the very real issue of putting off unrighteousness, and therefore uses the same word. Interesting. And so he says to the Colossians, going back to Colossians 3, you must put off like a robe, like a coat, like a garment, all of the deeds of unrighteousness. And he borrows this literal rending of it, and he says, hey, this is what you should do spiritually. Spiritually. And by the way, he uses this a number of times, this concept of putting off. One of those that's listed for us is in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Here, he says in verse 11, And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What does he mean? Obviously, he means that they were spiritually dead, and he uses the analogy of sleep. And he says, for now, salvation is nearer to us than we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore put off, that's the word, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Just like an old garment that was used and filthy and rotten, put it off. Take off that jacket that doesn't befit you. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There he uses the same kind of analogy. Put off the old coat and put on the new. He uses the same thing also in Ephesians chapter 4. The parallel passage to Colossians 3 in verses 22 and 25. He says, in reference to your former manner of life. Who you used to be, you put off the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He says, you should put off. And then he says, verse 24, you should put on. What should you put on? You should put on, verse 25, the righteousness which is the opposite of falsehood. You should put on truth. You should not be angry in a sinful way, verse 26. You should not give the devil an opportunity, verse 27. You should not steal, verse 28. You should not have unwholesome words, verse 29. You should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30. You should not allow bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be a part of your life because you're a new person, verse 31. You should be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving each other because Christ has forgiven you, verse 32. He says, listen, if you've got an old dirty coat, no one in his right mind would keep it on. He would put it off. He would take it off. And he would put on that which is new, that which is fresh. It says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12.1, 12, very familiar passage. Therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's been often misunderstood. It's not that the faithful saints who have died before us are standing over the rail of the stadium looking down at us and seeing how we're doing. That's not the point at all. The point is Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the hall of faith. All of those who exhibited great faith in God, they, by example, ought to be the cloud of witnesses for us. They're witnessing to us of their great faith. And we ought to take their example. And therefore, we ought to lay aside or put off every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Same idea, lay aside, put off, same word, put off, just like a jacket that doesn't fit anymore, just like a coat that is ugly and filthy and rotten. You should put it off, take it off says the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside or putting off or taking off all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. It's an old jacket. It doesn't fit anymore. It's dirty and filthy and rotten. Put it off. Take it off. 1 Peter 2, 1. And Paul obviously loves this analogy of taking off this jacket that doesn't work anymore. 1 Peter 2, 1, Therefore, putting aside or putting off or taking off all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Putting it off. Taking it off. And by the way, the concept of a garment itself, not just the putting off of the garment, Not just the idea of the verb, taking it off, putting it off, putting aside, but the garment itself is a word that Bible writers love to use, an analogy that they love to use to speak of spiritual truths. They often talked about garments as though they were an object that communicated truth, spiritual truth, spiritual reality. You say, how so? Well, Isaiah, for one, talked about being clothed with strength. Isaiah 51.9. We don't have time to turn there. You might just write these down because it's a fascinating study. The Bible writers talked about garments as though they were virtues or vices. The vices obviously take the jacket off. The virtues put that kind of jacket on. Clothed with strength. He also says that, by the way, does Isaiah, in Isaiah 52.1. He talks about being clothed with strength. The psalmists often talk about that. They also speak of being clothed with majesty. Clothed with majesty. Psalm 93, 1. Psalm 104, verse 1. Job also speaks of it. He talks about being clothed with majesty. Job 40, verse 10. The Bible also speaks of being clothed with dishonor and cursing. Psalm 109, verse 18 uses that analogy and says, listen, if you are a cursing kind of person, if you are a person that dishonors God and others around you, it's almost like you wear that as a piece of clothing. And believe me, at that time, clothing was extremely important, just as it is today. Obviously, much more so in that time because they didn't have all the niceties that we have. And so clothing was a perfect analogy for the Bible writers to use to talk about that which was close to you. Obviously, clothes are close to the body. And it communicated great spiritual truths. Even in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 41, it even talks about being clothed with salvation. Being clothed with salvation. So many places in the Bible, frankly, that talk about this. In Job chapter 29, verse 14, It talks about being clothed. And there it says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. You see the analogy? We ought to be clothed with salvation, clothed with righteousness. Psalm 35, verse 26. Psalm 35, 26. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Clothed with shame and dishonor, those who dishonor God and His people. Psalm 109, 109, 29. speaks also of clothing it says, let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. Psalm 132 also speaks of being clothed. He says, let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy godly ones sing for joy. And I mentioned to you a moment ago Romans chapter 13. I didn't read the most important verse, verse 14. There it says in Paul's analogy, put off the deeds of darkness, which I read to you, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And there he uses that very same analogy. Listen, if you're going to be clothed, If you're going to say you're a Christian, if you're going to say you're a regenerate person, that you have a new life in Christ, then you, by your very nature, must put on, like a jacket, like a robe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ought not to make any provision for the flesh, for sin, in regard to its lusts. Put those things off like a worn-out, dirty jacket that doesn't fit you anymore. In fact, if you are a Christian, it doesn't fit you anymore. You've outgrown it. Put it off from you. Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we are of the day, we're not the people of the night. The night is of wickedness. The night is of evil. We're of the day. Saved people are of the day. Let us be sober, having put on having been clothed with the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We're not only putting things on, we're putting on real virtue, righteousness, holiness, truth, the hope of salvation. And by the way, it even goes beyond just the individual Christian putting off the garments of unrighteousness and putting on the garments of truth. It goes much more than that. It's not just the individual who's doing that. God is said to be doing a work with the body of Christ as a corporate whole, a corporate entity. All of us make up something that is a body of Christ. We're together, we're whole. We're not just individuals. As often has been said, and it's very true, we are not lone ranger Christians. Nobody's out by himself. Nobody should be. It's like a lot of logs that burn brightly in a fire. We're together. But if you take one of those logs and put them away, what happens to that fire? It quickly goes out. Christians are not people who are characterized by being loners. We need each other. And because we need each other, we must minister to each other. And God says that what He is doing is ministering to His entire body, the body of Christ. And what is he doing? What is the whole body of Christ being characterized by? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, something fascinating about the body of Christ, this entity that we call the body of Christ. Verse 53, For this perishable, this body, must put on, there's our analogy, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting you say I thought Paul was referring to himself there no he's referring to what is happening in God's dynamic influence in the body of Christ as a whole and what he's saying is when we are perfected death will no more have its power over us as the body of Christ. We have put off death like it were an old jacket and we have put on life, eternal life. Boy, what a truth. What a truth. And when you get discouraged individually, when you think as a Christian that you're all alone, Just think of this. God is doing His work. And He's doing His work not just in you, but every other person who names the name of Christ. And what God is doing on that cosmic level is that He is preparing you individually and me individually as a corporate whole so that one day death would be completely annihilated and life would be put on us as though it were a new set of clothes. What a truth! What a truth! Don't think ever as an individual that you are alone. You're not. God is doing something and He's doing something in the body of Christ. He's doing something with us. He is molding us and shaping us even as a body to do all that He desires. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For indeed in this house we, the body of Christ, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. In other words, we want heaven. The body of Christ is crying out for heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul is saying, that in a sense, even now, even as the body of Christ, we groan and, it's, and it sometimes feels as though we are naked. But one day, one day, that which appears to be mortal now will be swallowed up by life, eternal life. And every individual and in the body of Christ itself will be going to glory having been put on with a life that we could never have our own, on our own. That is us. And what's Paul saying here in Colossians 3 with this analogy of putting on and putting off? He's saying this to these Colossians. He's saying that you must discard, put away, put off any repulsive habit like a worn-out set of clothes. What I love these Bible writers as they use analogies that we can very easily understand. All of us put on clothes every morning of our lives and we take off those clothes every night of our lives. And we understand very, very well what he's saying. Listen, if you've got some clothes that don't fit you, if they're ugly, dirty, filthy, if they are rotten to the core, you should have no business wearing them. Put them off. Take them off. And if you have clothes that have been fashioned for you by the master designer, if they're beautiful and fresh and new, put them on. Put them on. Keep them on. And why would anybody in their right mind ever having those new clothes fashioned for them and maybe even wearing them for a time and having that freshness and that newness and having those wonderful clothes being fashioned for us by the designer, ever want to take them off and put on those old dirty clothes again. doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not right. And every one of us, if we are in sin... We feel just like that. What am I doing? Why am I acting this way? What is it about me that motivates me to take off my new clothes and to put on these old clothes? What is it about me that when I perform the deeds of righteousness as a new habit in my life, virtue, love, compassion, humility, etc., why would I want to put those things off of me for a time to put on those things that are characteristic of the old life? The idea of immorality and impurity and passion and greed, all of those things, I cannot walk in those things. I'm a new man in Christ. I've got new clothes. I don't want to walk in the old ones. They don't even fit me anymore. And we're not talking about just the transfer of jackets. We're talking about the repudiation of an entire life, an entire realm of existence. And he says there in Colossians 3, in verse 8, but now you also put them off. That's a command, folks. That is an imperative command. Why? Why, Paul? He says in verse 7, you used to walk in these things, but now put them off. You used to live in them, but now take it off like an old jacket. You once walked in these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, but now in addition to the putting off of those things, I'm going to give you another list. Put these off from yourselves as well. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Those are the things that he says we must discard. And by the way, just like the list that we talked about last time, that list that's listed for us in verse 5, in verse 8, he gives us another list, and it's not exhaustive. It's just representative. It's just a list of things that he knows that they would be struggling with. He knows it would be a list characteristic of the things that they would have been characterized by in their past life. And he says very clearly, very forthrightly, but now, but now. Don't do it because you're a different person. You've got a new set of clothes. But now. And then he says, but now you also put them all aside. Literally, he says this, but now you also put off all things. All things, not just some things, all things. Paul tells the Colossians in clear unmistakable language you discard anything, all things, that don't speak of your new life in Christ, that aren't characteristic of the new man. They're to put aside everything that was done in connection with the old man and You ought to do the things which are characteristic of your new nature. You're a new creation. You're a new body. I've fashioned out of this sinful world a new creation called the body of Christ. And what I'm doing with that body is characteristic of a new life, a new song, a new salvation. And you ought to do the things that speak of that newness. And what does he say? What does he tell us? What are those vices? And frankly, even though we don't like to hear it, it's another negative list. We don't like to hear it often. We'd want to hear much more about love and patience and kindness and all things sweet. But Paul knows he's a realist. He understands. He understands the things that we will struggle with. He understands the things that used to characterize us and... If we aren't going to be characterized like the list in verse 5, well, I never did immorality. I was not involved in in impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. That wasn't characteristic of my life. I mean, those are the great sins. Those are the big sins. I I I wasn't characterized by those things. Paul comes along and says, okay, all right. If you're not characterized by those things, how about this list? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, an abusive speech from your mouth. And in essence, you know what he's doing. He's going from external to internal. All of the things in the previous list were those things that normally manifest themselves outside of your body. Certainly they start in the mind, but they manifest themselves outside of the mind. Here he says, now I'm going to go internal. You tell me that you're not involved in those sexual sins, how about anger, wrath? Malice. How about slander? How about abusive speech? He says, first of all, anger. Anger. Orge. Orge. It's a very, very prominent word in our Bibles. In the Old Testament and in the New. Anger. A chronic, habitual temper. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I know, by experience that that can be a deadly sin, a chronic, habitual temper. You could call it like this, a passionate outburst of anger, a passionate explosion of rage. Someone characterized it this way, a settled hatred, a boiling inside. And obviously, this is a reference to sinful anger. There is such a thing, as you know, as righteous anger. We know that's true because God is said to be an angry God. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Did you realize that? That God hates evildoers with a righteous anger every day. We don't like to talk about that and some of us may have never even heard that, but it is true. God has a settled fury against wicked people every day. The difference, of course, between what what Paul is saying here and that kind of anger is that God has every righteous motive in having that kind of anger. And Paul says this kind of anger that's listed here isn't that kind. You remember Jesus Christ when He came in the form of a baby and grew up When he had this kind of anger, righteous anger, what did he do to those who were in the temple? He cleansed the temple, didn't he? He says, you are absolutely destroying my father's house. This is a house of worship and prayer and you've made it into a house of merchandise. And how did that anger burn within Christ? He fashioned a whip, the scripture says, and he went in and he cleaned them out. You know what that means? That means premeditation. He had to think about what he was doing when he was fashioning that whip. He had to think about what he was doing when he went into that temple. He had to think about what he was doing when he cleared them out. That's an example of righteous anger. And did you know that the Apostle Paul himself also commands Christians to be angry? It's not the unrighteous anger, but it is the righteous kind It's to be angry over sin. It is to be angry over unrighteous people. It is to be angry over evildoers. He says that in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. Could be translated this way. If you are angry, be careful not to sin. In other words, you ought to have the same kind of righteous indignation as God himself has over evil people. Evil doing, who blaspheme His name, who speak out against Him. You ought to be angry over that, which means obviously you ought to be angry over the sin in your own life, yet not sin in the process. He says, even in Ephesians 4.31, let all wrath and anger be put off from you, like a pair of dirty old clothes. Don't let that anger and that wrath that used to characterize you be a part of your new life. Put it off. Why? Because that kind of anger is wicked, It is self-centered. It is out of control. It is a rage. It It is an anger that must not characterize a part of the new humanity. We know that's true because James says, doesn't he, in James 1, be slow to speak, slow to what? Anger. Be slow to that. Have a slow fuse. Don't have a quick fuse. Don't do that. And then secondly, he says wrath. And it's closely related by the way. It's sometimes even used interchangeably in the New Testament, this idea of anger and wrath. This is the word thumas. Thumas. We could say it's white hot anger. White hot anger. And it refers to the burning anger like flames that burn with an intensity of a grand fire. And if we could say that anger is that settled temper inside, this this wrath is that kind of anger that manifests itself, an outburst, an instantaneous, passionate outburst of anger. In Romans 2.8, thumas is used along with orge, of divine retribution by God. That's His divine wrath. And He says that it is going to be given to those who obey wickedness. Well... If they obey wickedness and if they are going to see the judgment and the wrath and the anger of God, then we ought to be opposite of that as the new man, the new humanity in Christ. We cannot be characterized by those things. Anger and wrath must be put away from us, put off like an old garment. There's an interesting word by Aristotle. Aristotle says that uncontrolled thumas, anger, rage, does indeed seem to hear the voice of reason but hears it wrongly like impetuous servants who rush out before hearing all that is said or like dogs which start barking before waiting to see if one is friend or not. Isn't that good? That says that anger and wrath is really someone who has no reason to do it. It's like a dog that barks incessantly no matter who walks by. It could be the owner of the dog. They have no clue. It's a wrath and an anger that is unabated. And did you know that 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 list that Paul gives of the same kind of vices that he talks about here in Galatians, it says that anger and wrath is a part of the works of the flesh. It's a part of the works of the old life. We cannot be characterized by these things. We ought not to do it because we are a part of the new humanity. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, For I am afraid that perhaps you, Corinthians, when I come, I may find you not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, and here's our word, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, Disturbances. He said, I fear that. I fear that that which characterized you before, not that it would characterize you now if you're the new humanity in Christ, but that it would be flaring up, flaring up so that it would need to be addressed. And he says, as though wrath and anger were like dirty, filthy, worn-out clothes, put it off. Put off these sins. Thirdly, malice. Malice. Kakion. Malice. It refers actually to trouble. That could be another way it's translated. Trouble. Trouble. In fact, it's translated there with no evil connotation in Matthew 6, 34. Trouble. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. But obviously in this context, in Colossians 3, it is talking about an evil kind of trouble. A malice. And you know what this idea of malice is? It is the intentional, deliberate, infliction of harm upon another person. Malice. The attitude or the action that desires someone else to be harmed, to do harm to one another. It is such an evil thing, this malice. It seeks to destroy fellowship, love, sensitivity. This word, by the way, is also used in some other contexts, and it denotes what we could call Moral badness. Moral badness. It's a generic word that really means evil toward another person. Personal animosity, malicious gossiping in order to tear down instead of building up. And it could refer to one single act of iniquity or it could refer to multiple acts. You remember Simon Magus in Acts 8 who tried to buy the Holy Spirit's power? The word malice is used of him. He wanted that power of the Holy Spirit so he could inflict on other people what he desired. That's the point. 1 Corinthians 5.8 1 Corinthians 14.20 Romans 1.29 Ephesians 4.31 says put off malice from you. It doesn't fit you. It doesn't fit you anymore. You can't be characterized by that so why do it? If malice is an issue of the heart, then certainly its outward manifestation is seen in the next two vices. You see what they are? Look again at verse 8. After malice, slander. Slander. You know what the word is in in the Greek text? Blasphemia. Blasphemy. That's what slander is. It's blasphemy. Slander. Defamation. It's actually... A speech against God. That's what slander is. A speech against God. A word against God. It is, in its general definition, abusive or scurrilous language directed against God. Or it could be directed against human beings. If it's directed against God, it's blasphemy. If it's directed against man, it's called slander. Slander. Or it could even be a blasphemy against God by speaking out against God's representatives. You could be slandering a person, but your real motive is that you want to get at God. And I hear this so much, and even in the counseling realm. I'll be counseling someone, and they are slandering their mate. And when we get down to the real issues in their life, it is actually a settled anger, a hostility against what God has done maybe even in giving that person to the person I'm counseling. Why has God given me this kind of person? Now, they would never say it like that, but what they do in return is slander the other person continually. And when we get far in our counseling, normally I'm asking them this question, what is it about your relationship with God that is allowing you to speak against someone else whom God says, this is my child? Why? It is because they have a settled hostility that manifests itself in a malice that speaks against the other person or against God. These are very, very sinful vices that he speaks of here. Blasphemy against God. And I wish we had time to speak of all of the passages that list this blasphemy, this slander. It's all over the scripture. There are blasphemies that are named which are sins against the name of God. There are blasphemies and slanders that are mentioned against the word of God. There are blasphemies that are mentioned in the Scripture that are words against the people of God. But it all comes from the same source. It is a speaking against someone to intentionally inflict pain upon them. And the New Testament speaks to this so clearly. James 3, verse 5, "...so also the tongue is a small part of the body." and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Credible? All from the tongue from words, from the things we say. You see why that cannot characterize the new man in Christ? Because we're in the fire putting out business, not putting on fires, not starting fires, especially not with our words, not slandering people. In Titus 3, verse 2, it says we are to malign no one. To malign no one. That includes those within the body of Christ and those without. We're to be characterized as so different from the the world that we're not maligning anyone, including our government, including our leaders, including those people who are helping us function in this society. We cannot slander. It is against the characteristic nature of our life. Anger, wrath, malice, slander... And then he gives one last one in this little list, abusive speech from your mouth. Foul talk. Foul talk. And then he adds, from your lips, from your mouth. You remember when he says in the earlier verse, greed, which amounts to idolatry? He does the same thing here. He lists four things, and then the last one has a qualifier. This does too. Abusive speech from your mouth. What is it? What is this abusive speech? Foul talk, filthy communication, disgraceful speech, low, obscene, dirty talk, swearing, sexual innuendo, evil speaking. That's what it is. And Paul says, do not let your mouths be polluted with the scurrilous and filthy language that used to flow readily from them. Boy, if that is not an issue for Christians to deal with, including myself. We must not do anything that characterizes us with the filthy talk of the world. And we may may not at times ever say it, but we need to go so internally in our lives that we don't even think it. We don't even think it. We shouldn't even have a mind regarding it. Why? Because our mind is set on heavenly things not on earthly things, not on the things that are bound to this earth, including all of its sin and evil. We could translate it like this. You must put off any foul-mouthed language out of your mouth. And he says in the parallel passage in Ephesians 4.32, here's what you're to put on, being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Such language ought to be curbed before it even comes out of the new man's mouth, even before it comes into the new man's mind. And how's that going to be? How can we possibly do those things? By immersing ourselves in the Word of God, by praying and asking God to deliver us from every evil temptation and test. Everything. Beloved, what does characterize the new man in Christ? Well, it's obvious. He pursues heavenly things. He's preoccupied with spiritual realities. He's putting to death every remaining sin in his life and he's putting off like a dirty set of old clothes, anything including anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech which used to characterize him in the past which is not him now. It's not you. It's not me. We cannot be doing it because it doesn't fit us. And believe me, when you study these passages... When you look at these verses with me, it is a spiritual exercise par excellence. Second to none. Why? Because this is practical truth. This is is spiritual truth where we're living. We're all living here. I know that. You know that. We are living in the light of very practical instruction from the pen of Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is where we are. And if it's where we are, we must apply it. There's no option. No option for us. We must look at these truths. We must mold and shape these truths as though they were a new set of clothes so that we can respond to a world who is exactly opposite. Let's pray together. Father, there's there's nothing left for us to do but. To pray, we we understand in very clear terms your instruction to us. We understand in unmistakable language that we are to put to death immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is self worship, idolatry. We're to put off like a dirty set of old clothes anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. It cannot be named among us because it doesn't fit who we are in Christ. Christ certainly wouldn't respond this way, and we shouldn't either if we're followers of Him. We thank you for giving us such clear instruction, and even though it is very, very difficult to hear and even more difficult to apply, we know that we have your power, your Holy Spirit. We have all of the resources to withstand the temptation from Satan, from his demons, from the world itself to put away these things from us. May we do so to such a degree that we indeed have the decreasing frequency of sin in our lives and an increasing frequency of righteousness to your glory. Thank you for challenging us and even though it's, it's hard to hear, It goes down to the very depths of our soul. It challenges us to be like Jesus Christ. And for that, we are so very, very thankful. May you work your work in us so that we are truly living up to our position in Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen.